All right, well, I better get rolling because I got like 25 pages of notes and <laughs> typical message is like four. So here we go. No, but this is a, you know, I decided to go for something today. We just finished our Ephesians uh, study and this happens to be July 4th, happens to be Independence Day. I happen to, uh, you know, particularly like this day for reasons, you know, aforementioned uh, and, and other ones. And so just praying about it, I feel like, you know what, before we get into a new series and, and uh, we've got some great things coming up. Um, I just felt like, you know what, let's seize the opportunity and let's do what we like to do here at Elevation, which is be bold, be courageous, look into the truth, look into the reality, look into history, look into God's word and say, how do we navigate this life? And how do we navigate this life in, in the place where we live? So I want to start us off with John Adams, second president of the United States, who had a, uh, a very interesting thought about this day that we're celebrating today as a nation, July 4th the Independence Day holiday, he said this, Independence Day will be the most memorable epoca, old word, epic, time, etc. be the most memorable time in the history of America. I'm apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. Here's what I like. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. There is no question whatsoever that is, a, that is an allusion to the Old Testament, to the Exodus story, the day of deliverance of God's people. So this is John Adams, the second president of the United States, in a full biblical worldview, saying he believes what happened on that day, what is going to happen in the days coming, is nothing short of a divine deliverance. That's a bold statement. That's a bold statement that we should not take for granted. And because it is seen as a, a day of divine deliverance, it should therefore, the response should be, solemn acts of devotion to God. In other words, it's <laughs> let's give God thanks and praise. And so that's an interesting perspective. And, and in contrast, I, I, I saw a, a tweet or a, whatever, a Facebook yesterday from a, a, a good person that I respect, a good, well-known Christian leader who will not be named because I'm all about unity of the body of Christ. So he can have a bad idea, but I don't need to slander his name. And his bad idea was this. <laughs> Let me tell you said, July 4th on a Sunday is a great opportunity to sing patriotic songs, celebrate this great nation, and show patriotism right after church. Tomorrow's a great day to worship God, celebrate your country. Just don't confuse the two. Now, there, there's, there's some truth into that, but what my contention would be, if anything is worth celebrating as a Christian, you should be able to celebrate it in church. Meaning, if you're getting into stuff outside of church and you're celebrating it and it's not worthy of praise, what's that called? Idolatry. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, nothing in life that we do out there, if it's true celebration, it, sh it should be able to be celebrated in here. If it's not God-honoring out there, it's not God-honoring in here. So it's like, no, there, there, we, gotta, we have to be nuanced about our approach. Now, I get where he's coming from that America and Jesus are not the same thing. <laughs> like the, the kingdom of America and the kingdom of God are not the same thing. And we never say that. Jesus is king. That's what we just sang. Those are our patriotic songs. Jesus is king. <laughs> Jesus is the only king forever. He's the only solution. 
He is the one who sets people free. As he said in John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So you can be politically not free, and you can have your soul free, according to Jesus. Or you can have your, your you can, <laughs> and here's where the, the challenge comes. You can be politically free and not have your soul free. And that's where the ultimate, I mean, it's great if you can combine both, sure. But our hope is first and foremost and always in Jesus. And we want to see his kingdom advanced in the place where he has placed us. And that's where I get fired up. Is you have these biblical references all over the place where God calls his people to be the light where they're at. To wrestle through their Christian faith and say, what does it look like to apply this in the world that I live? And I would argue, as we're going to see in a moment here, that's really what the founders were doing. They're just broken and flawed people that they were doing their best, mostly as strong believers, to apply their faith to the context that they lived. Was it perfect? Heck no. Was it amazing? Yes. <laughs> it's like Jeremiah 29, 7. God tells his people, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. So this is Babylon. The corrupt empire that God judges a little bit later for their rebellion against God and abominations against God. And God says about that place, while you're there, my people, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. On its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And that welfare is the word shalom. One of the top three or four most important words in the entire Bible. Jesus picks that up, and, and the way he describes it, I mean, it, it, it's heaven. It's heaven on earth. It's God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a very broad word. It means peace. It means wholeness. It means complete. It means prosperity. It means well-being. It means things as they were intended to be. <laughs> things as God created them and intended them to be. The blessing of heaven comes down and we encounter God's shalom. And quite shockingly, in this context of Jeremiah 29, God tells his people to the wicked empire of Babylon, I want you to bless them. While you're there, your job is to bless them. Your job is to pray on their behalf. This is interesting. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. That's an interesting mindset. Pray to the Lord. If you're there, then pray on its behalf that they will be blessed. That location, that place, that nation will be blessed with more of heaven transforming that place. It doesn't say just stick to yourself. It doesn't say just, just be the holy people of God. It says where I've placed you, pray that the shalom of heaven would transform that place. Take that posture of praying on its behalf. And so I take very seriously that wherever God has placed people, wherever they are, wherever they find themselves around the world, and we find ourselves right here as citizens of this nation, as Christians living in the, U, in the U.S. of A., we are called to seek the shalom of our city, of our state, of our nation, and take on a mantle where we would pray on its behalf, not just give up. And be like, oh, well, Christians, okay, we got, we got our thing going, to get, going good. We, we're going to heaven. Whatever happens in the nation, whatever. Now, the heart of the follower of Jesus, as Jesus said, is go to make disciples of all nations. 
every tongue, tribe, and nation, wherever we're at, as we're going, God's heart, God's call is to take on that place on its behalf. Take it up as God cares. God hasn't forgotten it. In fact, God sent his only son because he loves the entire world. So judgment has not yet come. Now's the time for redemption. Our job until he returns and he'll, he'll take care of that judgment that's needed on whoever and wherever. Our job is to see the kingdom advance and take on cities, states, and nations on their behalf. Bless them before the Lord. Pray for them before the Lord. And so I, I take it very seriously as we get into this holiday. The question for myself is how, how do we take on its behalf, how do we pray for our nation? How do we bless our nation? And so I want to take us, there's, there's, there's so much, and I'm, I wasn't joking when I was like, I have way too many notes, way too many. There's too much to go into in, in American history in, in, in one short message. So I'm going to pick one thing that stands out mightily today that I would encourage and challenge all of us that we can get behind as a prayer on behalf of the nation, a prayer where we bless the nation, where we've already seen it in the nation and we want to call forth that gold again and we want to call the nation back to that and, and, and we want to call the nation to a greater level of it than we've ever had before. And that is a bold, childlike dependence on God. And so I want to take us today is back into the history books a little bit and see where there was genuine dependence on God. And also where that went wrong. And that gives us at least one very foundational key area where we can pick up that mantle of on behalf of it, on behalf of the city, the state, and the nation, declare and pray and declare blessing that people, government officials, state officials, and the nation itself would come to a beautiful, radical, humble dependence on God. So let me take us back here a little bit. The Declaration of Independence itself, which John Adams was referring to, it captures a foundational aspect of this nation that we can bless and pray for and, and call for a return to, and that is genuine dependence on God. It's in the Declaration if you haven't seen it. I'll take us there in a moment. But before that, I want to take us to a little bit further back in the history books to see where even some of the language came from in the Declaration itself. So I'll start with a picture because that's always, uh, you know, nice. So here's one of the first ever American flags. If you haven't seen this before, it's, it's an incredible story. This is often called the Liberty Tree Flag or the Appeal to Heaven Flag. And it was shortly after the Declaration of Independence was signed and, and uh, all the founders knew that war was coming. And George Washington, for the first time, officially, officially called for a sanctioned military ships to be the, you know, the American armada, if you will. And upon doing that, there's a choice. What's the flag that we fly so that we know who you know, our friends are? And so Colonel Reed, Colonel Joseph Reed, made a suggestion to all the captains and he says this, please fix upon some particular color for a flag, meaning fix upon means decide, and a signal by which our vessels may know one another. Interesting that the colonel asks a question, kind of gets a, 
you know, consensus here. What do you think of a flag with a white ground, a tree in the middle, white background, a tree in the middle and the, mo- and the motto, appeal to heaven? This is already the flag of our floating batteries. So you, very interesting, an appeal to heaven coming from the colonel. And in other places, there is some significant battles like the Battle of Bunker Hill where it's recorded that this same flag uh, was used with this motto on it. Even spread to England to the point where the Americans uh, were known now for flying this flag that says an appeal to heaven. There was a quote, a report of a captured ship revealed, quote, that the flag taken from the American privateer is now deposited in the admiralty. I don't know what that word is. Basically, like we... We stole it, we've got it, (laughs) we're keeping it, and here's the flag. The flag is white with a spreading green tree with the the, the motto, Appeal to Heaven. But to understand even where that comes from, we've got to go back a little bit even further, and this is the important, this is a passion of mine uh, of of getting into history and not just reading the headlines of the news, which are atrocious from every angle. We've got to get into the real history of the United States and take the time that it takes to really dig in and read primary source documents and what, what actually took place and what actually happened and what was the perspective of the people who were leading and influencing at the time. And so this appeal to heaven phrase came out of John Locke, who was an incredibly influential writer, philosopher. He wrote the Second Treatise of Government, 1690. And in this book, this famous philosopher that had profound, profound influence on the, on the founders and the, the framers of the Declaration and the Constitution, he argued that when a government becomes so oppressive and tyrannical, there no longer remains any legal response or legal remedy for a citizens. They can, quote, appeal to heaven and resist that tyrannical government. And he writes in, his, in that very book this phrase that appeal to heaven came from the Bible. It came from Judges 11.27 where Jephthah and Ammon, or the, or the Ammonites, were, were coming to uh, an irreconcilable difference. In other words, Ammon was bringing war upon Jephthah. And although Jephthah wanted to have nothing to do with war, he saw that that was going to be his only option. And so he said that he was going to appeal to the judge, the just judge. May the Lord, and this is Judges 11.27, may the Lord judge or excuse me, may the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. And that phrase, may the, may the judge, judge today, became this phrase that John Locke picked up and said what, what Jephthah was doing there was saying when in the course of human events where a, a reconciliation can't take place, you have to appeal to heaven. And so he was encouraging from Judges 11.27, that a proper response in government, when you're facing a tyrannical government that will not budge in any way, you make an appeal to heaven. Now let's fast forward to the Declaration of Independence. At the very end of it, here's what it says. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress, assembled appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these United States are and of right ought to be free 
and independent states. And for the support of this declaration, here we go, with a firm reliance upon the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Could it be that the Declaration of Independence from Britain is also a declaration of dependence upon God? A hundred percent. Appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. That is both a quote from Judges 11.27, where God is seen as the judge who judges the rectitude of of, of nations and their intentions. And it's a quote from John Locke who takes Judges 11 and turns it into that phrase, an appeal to heaven. And the declaration intentionally uses both. And that's an incredible piece of American history that I would say Independence Day, from my perspective, just as it is important that we celebrate Independence Day from Britain, I believe a more important foundation of the United States of America is it is a declaration of Dependence Day on God. That was right. That was good. That was different. There is scarcely any nation in the world that ever has their founding document with a declaration of dependence upon God. I mean, to be frank, this is a prayer. Like, it's flowery, flowery language that we don't really use anymore, but the closing of a declaration of independence is a prayer. If you read it like a prayer and you see it, we therefore, the representatives of the United States American General Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. That's humbling of oneself, saying, if our intentions are right, rectitude means righteous. If there is anything righteous in our intentions, we're casting our dependence upon you, God. That's a good place to start as government leaders. I think it's very similar to, or a living out of the John 15, 5. What did Jesus say? I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I and you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. That's an incredibly clear statement from Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can bear no lasting good and just and righteous kingdom fruit. And that's the posture of the whole Bible. When, when things go wrong, it's Psalm 2 where people say, I want to throw off the chains of God. I want to throw off the bondage that is Trusting in God, submission to God, dependence upon God. I'm going to cast off those chains and I'm going to live free on my own. And that's the greatest tragedy ever that we see in the Bible. Conversely, it's where people are dependent upon God from start to finish of life. That's where power comes. That's where we let God be God. And the founders had it. A rich history of dependence upon God. This didn't just come in the collective and the corporate. It came out of genuine faith in God. Let no one tell you that the founders were not primarily and a majority Christians. That is an absolute falsehood. John Adams said this, Statesmen may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. In other words, if you don't have God as a foundation of it all, there is no hope for freedom. 
And by religion, he means Christianity. <laughs> Let's just be clear. It was a historical you know, context of the time. President George Washington said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are the indispensable supports. In vain would that a man claim a tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. In other words, he says, if you're a real patriot, then religion and morality are your foundations because it's our only hope of what we're going for in this nation. Or Benjamin Rush, lesser known founder, but he's the founder of, or signer of the Declaration. He's the first Surgeon General. He started the first abolitionist society in America. And he said this, the only foundation for a republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there can be no virtue. Without virtue, there can be no liberty. And liberty is the object in life of all Republican governments or representative governments. A very rich, <laughs> incredibly clear foundation of dependence upon God. Even to the point that when a, when a young Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville came over to the United States shortly after its inception and after the Revolutionary War, I believe it was a couple decades after it all, he was absolutely shocked because the United States of America was making waves throughout the world of some really different things going on. And among other observations, this was one of his primary ones. Quote, the Americans combine the notions of Christianity and liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive of one without the other. The religious atmosphere of the country was the first thing that struck me upon my arrival in the U.S. In France, I had seen the spirits of religion and freedom almost always marching in opposite directions. So he's saying in France, religion equaled law, rules, bondage, holding people back instead of liberty setting people free like he observed in America. In America, I found them intimately linked together and joined and reigned over the same land. Religion should be therefore considered as the first of their political institutions. From the start, of America, politics and religion have agreed and have not since, excuse me, and have not since ceased to do so. In other words, this outside objective source who's coming over to kind of study America and say, what is going on over here? There's some really good and special things happening. And he says, shockingly, I observed, to use my language, a dependence upon God that I've never seen before. All the way up to the highest levels of leadership and in, and in the foundation of all of the government. Radical dependence upon God. That is absolutely something to be proud of, to see it in the founding document. And, and here's where the, the movement going forward is, is to bless that. Because we know that's not the case. And we know it wasn't lived out perfectly. And we know that there are many in the country right now who want to remove God in any form and fashion, if possible. And so that I, I believe as we pray on its behalf, as we're here, first citizens of heaven, but yes, citizens of this nation, and called to advance a kingdom where God has placed you to take on our city, our states, our nation, on its behalf, is to pray and bless Call out the gold in America. Call out the gold that it started with. And one of the golden things that is different 
if not never seen before, maybe with the exception of the people of Israel, the starting and founding of a nation with such clear, overt, explicit dependence upon God. That is gold. That's gold to be called out. It's gold to be prayed for, to, be, to bless this nation, to call this nation to return to it, and to call this nation to live, live it out like it never has before, in greater measure. We're not saying the best days are behind us. No way, the best days are ahead. And we call that gold forth. And in all of this, I'll be honest though, we, we live in a place, we live in a time, we live in an era where all of that genuine dependence upon God is called into question. Where even the nation itself is called into question as a failed experiment Saying, oh, you go back to the early history days? No, there was, there was never anything good. It was, it was a poisonous root from the beginning. And people point to real and particular sins in our country, such as slavery, as the one particular reason and why all of these founding documents and all of the founders can just be ignored and say, no, this, this wasn't genuine. There was nothing good. There was no rectitude in their intentions. There was no righteousness here. There was no righteous ethic being lived out. It was all a sham. So we need to get rid of these documents. We need to have a, a new founding of America. And we need to be looking for a new way of, of being Americans. We can't go back to the original creeds. They're false. I mean, there was a, there was a whole entire article put out in the New York Times under this title. Our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. And that's a pervasive mentality. That you cannot trust anything about the founding because, in particular, of slavery. It makes the whole thing false. And along with that, if you haven't already heard, there's a very you know, clear, different narrative about what America truly is. And that's the whole narrative of the 1619 Project, which says America, at its essence and at its core, is the slave nation that happened and started in 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia, when the first slave ship came up the James River and, and on an already, you know, ship of slaves, slaves were purchased, and that's a real fact. But it's also now the narrative that says, and that is America. And so as... A Christian, as an American, as one who sees these founders and, and hears their hearts and believes that they are genuine in what they are saying and believes that it resonates in my spirit, that those are genuine brothers in Christ, flawed humans as they are, trying to live out an ethic of the kingdom in the context where God had put them to live. And then, and then you have this other narrative, and it's like, it's so disconcerting, it's so... It, it, it's, it's upending. It's confusing. And so it's like, what do you, how, how do you reconcile those? Because it, it, you know, it's, it's rough. And so it, I would argue, let's just cut to the chase. There is a battle for the soul of America from the beginning. I would argue there is a battle for the soul of America now. <laughs> But it's not new. There was a battle for the soul of America from the beginning. 
And I believe Plymouth and Jamestown, Jamestown represented that battle. Those are the two earliest Brit British colonies on this land. And I believe they represent the battle for the soul of America. In 1607, Jamestown was founded. In 1620, Plymouth was founded. And I would argue that early in the colonies, there are two absolutely dichotomous, distinct streams of influence. One is greed, one is godliness. One is greed, one is godliness. Jamestown 1607 embodied the love of money that the Bible warns will become a root of all kinds of pernicious evil. I believe, James, I believe Plymouth in, in 1620 embodied the love of God that led to a genuine desire for liberty and justice for all that we see in the foundation. So Jamestown, 1607, there's a group of merchants and traders who had occupied land given to them, given to them by King George. Founding Jamestown, or excuse me, King James. Why did I say George? King James, he was a little bit before that. King James, 1607, gave this group of settlers, merchants, traders, this land, called it Jamestown. Now, the Bible warns, Jesus warns of the love of money, the love of mammon. You cannot serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. And, and I, I am very, very convinced that it was the love of money that founded Jamestown. Gold and glory for, for the king. And what did that lead to? Exactly what the Bible says. It is the root, the love of mammon, the love of money, the God of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And so, yes, the reality of the utterly atrocious, pernicious evil infiltrated Jamestown. So to the point where when humans came on a boat that were already enslaved and stolen from Africa, they were purchased. That is an utter abomination to God. And the result of this atrocious love of money that corrupts the human heart and will lead to all sorts of evils. That's real. It happened. You know what also happened in 1620 in the midst of massive persecution? A very, very small church of about 120, 125 adult members from uh, the Scrooby congregation in England fled persecution in England by King George. So there was King George. I know he had a part to play in this. They had to flee. Why? Because they were under threat of death for believing in the Protestant Reformation that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. That each and every person has an individual responsibility before God to trust in Jesus as their righteousness and no amount of penance or works or indulgences or paying money to the church. Huh, that's a, that's a common thread. The root of all evils or many, many types of evils is a love of money. So, in contrast, running from the love of money, this, this wild band of courageous people. And when I say courageous, I mean it. Because when you're 125 people, and you have the king of England's attention, and when you have the king of England's attention to the point that he is sending guards and, and you know, armed military folks to try to find you, to kill you, like, 
Hmm. 125 people got the king's attention because it was so bold and courageous and subversive and threatening to the point where they, they fled. They went to Holland. And William Brewster started printing materials because he's living out God's call to take on, take on a nation on your behalf. So even though they fled to Holland, he started printing books and sending them back to England. Why? Because God had put them in England. And so they were convinced that it was their mission to not give up on England, but to evangelize England, even though they, they were already under death threat. So they started publishing books to get the good news of who Jesus is and the Protestant Reformation back to England to the point it caught the king's attention to such a degree that he sent his militias over to Holland in search of this tiny little church to kill them. And so at that point, they fled to this new world with a very clear vision. And here it is from William Bradford, the governor, first governor of the Plymouth Colony. We have a great hope and an inward zeal that of laying some good foundation to make at least some way thereunto for the propagating and advancing of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world. Yeah, that through they should, or excuse me, that though they should be put even as stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work. And he goes on a little bit later to say, in the midst of the dark times and the serious persecution that they lived with, this great hope and inward zeal, and they ended up having less than 50 people come, and more than half of them died in the first winter. And yet he, through it all, writes this, as one small candle may light a thousand, so the light here kindled hath shown unto many. Yeah, in some sort to our whole nation, let the glorious name of Jehovah have all praise. You, you couldn't have more distinct visions for what you're going to do in the new world. And you know that when the first slave ship arrived in Massachusetts, given that same offer that happened to Jamestown, you know that the ship's officers were arrested and imprisoned and the slaves were purchased and sent back to Africa. That was Plymouth's first response to a slave ship. And it is, could not be more contrasting with Jamestown. And that, that legacy continued from these Christian roots in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Do you know the Massachusetts outlawed slavery in 1783, becoming the first organized government body in the world to do so? We got to think about that. In the state of Massachusetts, where the Puritans came and lived out this vision of desiring and longing to see the kingdom of God advance and the name of Jehovah to be praised and the light of Christ to shine. It is not a coincidence whatsoever. It's the first organized governmental body in the world to outlaw slavery. That's amazing. That is just as much a part of the true American history and legacy as what unfortunately was propagated in Jamestown. The, Massachusetts was way ahead of the rest of the world 
it was 50 years ahead of England. In England becoming the first nation, entire nation in the world to outlaw slavery. Massachusetts was 50 years ahead of it because of the foundation, the true foundation of Christ. And as we move forward, that foundation was so strong, it made it into the Declaration of Independence, draft number one. A lot of these things are, are, are never told for very clear reasons. They don't want to be told. Most of the, the media news outlets on all sides today make money off of division. And so we don't hear things like this. Do you know that in the Declaration of Independence, it contained a draft in the draft form of an anti-slavery clause. It was actually one of the grievances against king, against the king, James. If you're not familiar with the declaration, it starts with that very famous you know, phrase. Let's read it, because it's a goodie. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That document starts, it's the Declaration of Independence, it closes with the Declaration of Dependence upon God, and in the middle of it, there are grievances against the king where the founders are saying, these are the injustices that you have perpetrated against us as colonies, as people, and these are the reasons why we must separate from you. These are the reasons why we are convinced of the moral rectitude of our intentions. These are the reasons why we believe we are righteous in separating from you. And do you know that in that draft form, the longest grievance that was in the Declaration of Independence was all about slavery? Here it is. The grievance against the king. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of distant people who never offended him, capturing and carrying them into slavery into another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in the transportation thither. This piratical or piratical, like a pirate warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers is the warfare of the quote-unquote Christian king of Britain determined to keep open a market where men, market, there's the love of money, root of all evil, and they're men, by the way, all men are created equal, and people say, oh, they, he wasn't talking about slaves. Yes, they were, because here's the same phrase, men referring to those who were enslaved. So determined to keep an open market where men should be brought and bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislated attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce. He's prostituted, in other words, he's prostituted Christianity. Claims to be a Christian king, you have prostituted the name of God through your slavery. This grievance against the slave trade was the longest of all the grievances occupying a better part of a page and having the most words underlined and capitalized outside of the title. Had this draft stayed in, the Declaration of Independence, 
if kept, essentially the United States of America would have been founded as an anti-slavery country. But unfortunately, because of the, 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 the specter of the greatest military might coming at them, they all made a decision. We are not going to just vote in a de democratic way where majority rules. We are going to vote unanimously. And if it's not unanimous, we're not doing it. And, and, and tragically, two of the 13 colonies, one where Jamestown started and poisoned them, Two of the 13 colonies voided against this clause, and so it was taken out. And the devil won. But I bet many of you don't know that, right? <laughs> like, that's true American history. So many more things to go, but we'll, 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 we'll pause. Critics say we need to get rid of America and all of its founding ideals, but I would argue that it is precisely because of the religious and moral foundation that you, United States, had the collective character, the religious, godly character to do the self-reflection that would even go to war against itself in a civil war. Because of the fact that this evil needed to be eradicated, it, we almost got there in the Declaration. We almost got there in the founding. Massachusetts was leading the way in its Christian foundation saying, look, world, this is what it looks like to govern in a place to advance the kingdom of God in both politics and people. We were almost there. Because of a very, very genuine dependence upon God, America has been fighting for its own soul from the very beginning. But I assure you, those phrases, those, those longings, those declarations of dependence upon God and those declarations of liberty and justice for all, all created equal, those were very, very genuine. So let's bless those. Let's bless those to come forth. Let's bless the gold in that. God has blessed this nation mightily. There, you go into the history books, and I firmly believe because of the dependence upon God that was demonstrated in the founders that God has shed his grace on me. God has blessed this nation with revivals like few nations have ever seen. And historically, they do things that few nations ever experience. We know that in the 1730s, about 100 years after the pilgrims came, and yeah, the battle, the battle for the soul of America is raging there was a great awakening that, that swept through the colonies. A, a, a great spiritual fervor for Jesus Christ. Where it said, it's estimated that over 80% of the colonists went and heard the revival preachers. Because the Spirit of God was moving so mightily. 80% of the population chose to go and listen and hear. And that prepared the soil of America for the revolution because of the message of individual responsibility before God. Individual responsibility before God to make your choice. No one, no one else can make that choice before you. And then if you choose, if you recognize that individual responsibility of a choice before God, that changes also the whole way that you see the world around you. Because now you're responsible as an individual for your actions in the world around you. And that's where the whole aspect of human rights started really coming to bear. That you, to play this out, to put this ethic out into a nation means it's not okay for the king to do what he's doing. Because all are created in the image of God. 
all have inalienable rights that came out of revival. And there was a second great awakening in the early 1800s. Wesley and all the incredible Methodists, and they, they stressed the holiness movement that our relationship with God needs to have a dramatic effect on the world around us. That's why it's called the holiness movement, meaning if the world around you isn't seeing a transformed reality in you, then you're probably not Christian to the point of social societal changes. And it's no coincidence that that revival led to right up to the Civil War and people coming out of the Methodist movement like that radical, incredible woman, Harriet Tubman, who heard those revival messages and was saved from an early age and got the fire in her belly of a God who cares about justice. And it was, when it was asked of her about her 19 missions back and forth where she never lost a single person, how is that possible? This was her quote. Why? It wasn't me. Why? Meaning like, that's I mean, kind of imagine like, you know, a southern, southern draw, southern woman, like, why? You know, why? It wasn't me. It was the Lord. I always told him. So the question was posed, how are you so successful in what you're doing? And she said, why? It wasn't me. It was the Lord. I always told him, I trust you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I'll expect you'll, I expect you to lead. <laughs> and she said, and he always did. Not a coincidence that that revival preceded the Civil War, where, the, where the, unfortunately the nation had to go to bloody war against itself to purge that original evil that unfortunately took root. And then there's another great awakening in the early 1900s, Azusa Street Revival. The Spirit of God fell in such an incredible, mighty way on the, the one-eyed, blind grandson of slaves, William Seymour, right there just an hour away. And God did a move of, of reconciling much of the, the broken racial reconciliation that was needed. Incredible works way, way beyond what culture and, and society was doing at the time, birthing a, a charismatic move of the Holy Spirit that now, fast forward 100 years, and sociologists say over 700 million people in this world call, would call themselves charismatic Christians, spirit-filled Christians. And if you take that group right there as a religion in itself, it's the fastest-growing religion in the world. That's significant. That should be hopeful. There's lots of things out there that, oh, Christianity is declining and this and that. Yeah, maybe dead Christianity. But if you take spirit-filled Christians and look at the broader context of the whole world, spirit-filled Christianity is the fastest-growing religion among every tongue, tribe, and nation in the world. That should be encouraging. And, and you can give a lot of credit to God's grace shed upon America in that Azusa Street revival. And it's continuing today. And I would say now, today, in this moment, are we not ready for another revival? Is this land not ripe and ready for another revival? Where you, you saw the stats last year that were utterly, utterly despairing. Where over 40% of adults in this country were, were feeling despair. And, and the fear that they felt on a daily basis had grown so much that they categorized themselves as in despair. That same, almost same exact uh, poll was given to Californians, and 43% of the, 
of, America, or of Californians said they were in despair. And one in four youth from the ages 18 to 25 had said they had contemplated suicide in the last 30 days. That is a wave of darkness that is over our nation. And so what such a time as this, we are here, we are now. God has said, I've put you here. So call this nation back to dependence on me. Call this city, call the state, call the nation to a dependence that is firmly there in our roots, but call it to a dependence that we have hitherto not yet seen. A greater dependence than we've ever seen before. Let us let July 4th, Independence Day, remind us of the true and most crucial roots that God wants us to bless. And that is, this is Dependence Day. Let every day be Dependence Day. Let's make that our declaration. Dance like David